Have you ever noticed that Christians act weird? Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is John. I'm the pastor here, and I've been watching this group of people for a while. And in case you didn't realize it, Christians act weird. Okay? I watch you all the time. You're strange. You're bizarre. You don't make any sense. Okay? I love you. You're just, you're a little off center. And maybe you've wondered why that is. Maybe some of you are with us today and you wouldn't call yourself a church person or a Christian and you're just checking it out and you're here for whatever reason you're here. I'm glad you're here, but you look at Christians and you think these people are strange and I don't know why. Well, I'll tell you why. We're weird and I have to include myself in that, by the way. The reason that we're weird is because we believe that we're meant for somewhere else and something else. We believe that one day Jesus Christ the son of God himself is going to return to earth and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And that's a very more real and very more tangible thing than most people think it is. You think about the governments here and the rule that's here, take all of that, replace it with Jesus and take out all the bad and replace it with good. And that's what's coming. And that's what we're looking forward to. But we're gonna have lives just like we have now and relationships just like we have now and things to do and jobs and responsibility and all of that. But what we choose to do as Christians is prepare now for what's coming then. And the problem is that what's coming then, the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring when he rules and reigns, when he's in control of everything, is very different than what is happening right now in the world and culture that we live in. And so we consider ourselves citizens of a different kingdom. And unfortunately, there's a big clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And Jesus spent a lot of his ministry trying to explain to people how his kingdom was going to work because it was so much in contrast to the way that the world works now and the way that the world worked then. And one of the primary ways that he used to teach about what his kingdom was going to be like are something called parables. They are stories, earthly stories with a kingdom meaning. And Jesus didn't always teach in parables. I don't always teach in parables, but when I do... I feel like there's a joke there. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> Jesus didn't always teach in parables. In fact, he taught very plainly up until it was very clear that the religious leaders, we call them the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, um, right up until the moment that they fully and completely rejected him. It happens between Matthew chapter 11 and, uh, or Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13. And then it's only then that Jesus begins teaching in parables because he knows, and he quotes from the, the Isaiah chapter six, a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. He quotes and he says, hey, they don't see and they don't understand. And so the parables are designed, yes, to make things understandable, but also at the same time to make them hidden from those who don't want to see. There, there's hidden meaning. Now that's not like some super mystery, but there's meaning that's supposed to be hidden from eyes that don't want to see it. And so that's part of the reason that Jesus taught in parables. And so we're doing this series called Pair-O-Bulls because... <laughs> admittedly hokey, but it's, it's to create the, the, the mental picture. If you even look at our graphic, our logo, two bulls locking horns. That's what is happening when Jesus is teaching the parables. It's two worldviews clashing with one another. And we're trying to learn how to live in the kingdom of God. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're taking a parable each week and talking about what it means. Um, I want to give you a little lead up to the one we're doing today. This, the one we're doing today isn't one of the famous ones. Okay. There's some famous parables like the good Samaritan or the parable of the tenants that a lot of people know. This isn't one of the famous ones, but I do think it's one of the most important ones, one of the most crucial ones. And Jesus tells it in the last week of his life here on earth. All right, before he, of course, is resurrected. But in the, his last week before crucifixion, 
series of events, so we're all on the same page. Jesus has been teaching in and about the area of Jerusalem, and finally he moves outside the city into the city, and there's a huge party that happens when he comes into the city for the week of the Passover feast. It's one of their big festivals. And as Jesus is coming in, everybody goes crazy. He comes in riding on a donkey, and people, they're like taking their coats off and putting them down on the ground. They're taking palm branches and they're waving them and laying them down in front of Jesus as Jesus enters the city. I imagine there's trumpets playing and probably like flowers floating through the air. Look at the Disney movie. And so Jesus is coming into the city and they're shouting Hosanna, Hosanna and the highest and they're praising him. And what's hard to see from our cultural context was easy for them to see from their cultural context. They were welcoming a king because that's the way a king would come into a city. And when Jesus came into the city this way, all the frustrations that the Pharisees, the religious leaders had with him already just got amped up to a new level. They got amped up and they challenged him in the way that he was entering the city. But he comes in, we call it the triumphal entry. We celebrate it on a day called Palm Sunday. If you ever heard of that, it's the week before, the Sunday before Easter. So Jesus comes into town and he comes in like a freight train, I'm telling you, because he comes in like that, which was very overstated for Jesus' understated ministry. So he comes in like that. First thing he does is he goes to the temple. And when he walks into the temple where they're supposed to be praying, it's supposed to be a serene place. They've got tables out and they're doing business. It's the Web Road flea market in the temple. Okay. And they're not doing good business either. They're ripping people off. They're cheating people. They're money changers and they're charging people tax and usury and all of this kind of stuff. Jesus walks in and sees it. And I'm telling you, it's the only time in Jesus' ministry that you see him angry. I mean, angry. And he starts going through, he's like Brock Lesnar in the temple, flipping tables, okay? Flipping tables and he makes, he sits down and he's braiding, he braids a cord, like a whip. He's, and I can see him sitting down, ooh, I'm going to get you. Shouldn't be doing it. I'm giving you time, okay? I'm giving you time to pack up your stuff and go. And he's, I mean, he's letting animals loose. It's crazy. And then he gets up and, and, and shouts to the whole place to, to try to let them understand why he's behaving the way that he's behaving. And they can't hear him. So they, so they hand him a mic, a mic and he's like, cool. Now I have two turntables and a microphone. That's where Beck got that from. I don't know if you realize that. It's, it's where it's at. But then he, so he looks at him and some of you get that one. And, <laughs> sorry. And he looks at him and he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. I mean, he is mad. And the very next thing that happens, it seems like a footnote, but it's important. Very next thing, he walks out of the temple and he sees a tree, a fig tree. All right, that's a fruit. I know we don't have figs a lot today. They're in Newtons. But anyway, he has the fig, he sees a fig tree, but the fig tree is not producing any figs. It has no fruit on it. And he looks at it and he says, you produce no fruit and you never will again. And the tree immediately withers. Okay, we're gonna talk about that in a little while. Take that one, stick it in your pocket. We're coming back to it later. All right, he withers the fig tree. And then he tells a couple of stories. The first one really quickly is about two sons. A father owns a vineyard and he says, I want you, got, you boys to go work in the vineyard. And one of them says, yes, dad, I'll go, but doesn't actually go. And the other son says, no, dad, I'm not going, but then feels guilty and ultimately goes. And Jesus says, and, and the Pharisees are like, oh yeah, that's terrible. You should, yeah, that, that son was horrible. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's you. So anyway, you're the one who said you were gonna go and then you didn't go. He said, surely the, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, they're all getting into the kingdom ahead of you. All right, because they may have said no at first, but they came back around. So he tells that story. And then he gets to the parable that we're gonna dig into today. So what I wanna do is first, I'm just gonna read it. And remember the Pharisees are here listening. 
The general population is here listening. The disciples are here listening. They're all there together at the same time. It's a very mixed crowd. And, and the Pharisees are hot and the disciples are a little confused and everybody else is just wanting to hear something from this Jesus guy. And so he tells this story. I'm just gonna read it and then we'll come back. I just wanna get a full picture of what he says. Then we're gonna come back and we're gonna look through it a, a little more carefully. It's in Matthew chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles and you wanna to turn to Matthew chapter 21, uh, you can turn there if you have a print Bible. If you have a guy on your phone, you can actually go to the YouVersion Bible app and click on a, the menu and click events. You can find this service and all the scriptures and texts will be there. And then you can even like save your notes and stuff. It's really cool. And if you don't have any of that or wanna use any of that, we got it on the screens. Hopefully by now you've had time to find it. I was treading water. Here we go. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased the divine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy these wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So before we take this apart, let's just say, God, we want you to open our eyes and ears and help us to see what you want us to see, not what the Pharisees saw. Help us to see this for what it is. Amen. All right, let's start with uh, verse 33. Jesus starts off, he says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased the divine dressers and went to a far country. First thing I want you to see is that the owner of the vineyard set everything up for the vine dressers. He provided everything that they needed in order to be successful doing their job. He found the plants. He planted the plants. He built the entire layout of the thing. He built a, a hedge, a hedge of protection. Christians love that phrase. A hedge of protection around the vineyard, which is what that was from. It would keep thieves out and it would keep animals out so they wouldn't get in to get the grapes. He built a wine press because you wanted to press your own grapes as soon as they came off the vine so they were as fresh as possible. So he provided that for them and he built a tower. And the tower served... Um, a few different functions. First of all, it would allow you to survey the entire perimeter of the vineyard for protection purposes. So, so you could see that hedge and, and the outside. It also allowed them to survey the entire vineyard so they could watch what other workers were doing or trouble spots, other things within the vineyard. But also the people who leased out the vineyard would live in the tower. 
So he provided them with security. He provided them with shelter. He provided them with plants. He provided them with equipment. He provided them with everything that they needed in order to be successful. And so as we get into this story, what I wanna encourage you to do, I'm gonna do it for myself, is to begin to develop just a picture in your head of what this place looked like. Just get a mental picture of this vineyard. Try to see it. Have you ever seen pictures of like wine country? It is, I mean, think of a cool breeze in the air, beautiful. Maybe the sun is setting over the hill as you're picturing the vineyard. Uh, my wife's uncle actually owns a winery in Napa Valley. It's called Frog's Leap Winery. And it's, I've never been there. It turns, it's expensive to go there, but uh, never been there. But we follow them on, you know, on the Instagrams and stuff. And you can, the pictures they post, it's, uh, I mean, it's magical. It looks like relaxing all, I'm sure it's not, but it looks like relaxing all of the time. It's just absolutely gorgeous. So just begin to develop that mental picture. And he takes this vineyard and he leases it out to vine dressers. Now we would probably use the term sharecroppers. That's what the sharecropping is. It's when someone owns the field and then leases it out to someone else who actually manages it and works it. And then when the harvest comes, they share in the proceeds from uh, that crop. So that's what he's done. He's leased it out to these people and he's entrusted it to them. Now, when we come to a parable like this, one of the first things we need to start asking ourselves is, what does everything represent? Right? Because everything represents something within the story. It's sort of like an analogy. And so when they heard this story, I believe they would have known immediately what Jesus was talking about. Because this sounds eerily similar to something the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5. I already told you Jesus quoted from Isaiah chapter 6 last week in our message. He quotes, or doesn't quote, but he references certainly back to Isaiah chapter 5 as he tells this parable. And the Pharisees in particular would have been very familiar with that prophecy, so they would have known what he's getting at as well. All right, so let me read that to you. It's Isaiah chapter 5 verses one through seven. And I think it's interesting in, uh, in, you know, if you look in your Bible, if you have a print Bible particularly, you'll see sections have headings often that are put in there by the translators. The heading in my Bible is God's disappointing vineyard. So take that into account as we're about to read. All right, that's kind of a spoiler alert. Sorry about that. But uh, Isaiah chapter five, starting in one, you're gonna hear the similarities. See if this sounds familiar. Verse one, now let me sing to my well-beloved. Now, this is Isaiah saying, let me sing to my well-beloved. You might notice this is a little cheat when you're reading through the Bible if you're not sure who it's talking about. You notice that well is capitalized, right? If you have something like this that's capitalized, it's almost always talking about that as a figure of speech for God himself. All right, so we already know when it says well-beloved, it's talking about God. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. Does this sound familiar? So as Jesus begins this story, they are immediately gonna draw their thought and draw their attention back. They're gonna know he's referencing what Isaiah said here and what, what we know is chapter five. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. They were having a lot of issues within the nation of Israel. And now, O habits of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done with it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me, 
please, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug for there shall come up briars and thorns. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Now pay attention to what he's about to say because this is gonna give us the key to who is who when Jesus is giving this parable. Verse seven, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So now we have, all, we have the keys to know who Jesus is talking about from Isaiah 5. So in Jesus' parable, who would be the landowner? God, I heard it over here, right? God would be the landowner. What is the vineyard? The house of Israel. That's what Isaiah said. The house of Israel. All of it, God's chosen, God's people. Right, the nation as a whole. Who are the grapevines? Did you catch it? He says, Isaiah said, the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. So the vines are the men of Judah, the people of Israel. And who are the vine dressers? The vine dressers are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. Not the whole nation. Not the whole nation. The vine dressers are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the people he's talking to. And then, he, so we know who everybody is. All right, and then he goes on and he says, in verse 34, now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Now, when Jesus tells his story, he's not talking about bad fruit like Isaiah. He's talking about bad farmers, all right, the vine dressers. Oftentimes, this parable is called the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Right, because they took these messengers and they beat them and they stoned them and they killed them. Now, can anybody ta hazard a guess? All right, take a risk here. Can anybody hazard a guess at who the serpents represent in Jesus' story? Prophets. I heard it over here. Somebody's got it over on this side. I'm telling you, it's the prophets. Okay? God sent, God sent messengers to the people all right, to tell to the religious leaders, to the priests, to the people, to tell them how they were supposed to be living, how to be faithful to God. But when they brought that message to them, they did not receive that message well, as people often don't receive that message well. And so the prophets were abused. Yes, some of the prophets were stoned, not recreationally, physically, and they were, they were persecuted and, and were even killed. You didn't like that joke, Jess. You thought that was too much? Okay. They were even killed. And here's the reason. You might say, well, why would they do that? Aren't they the spokespiece of people for God? Yeah, they are. And listen, there's two roles in the Old Testament, two religious roles in the Old Testament. You have priests and prophets. Everybody loves the priests. Nobody likes the prophets. Everybody likes the priests because the priests are the ones who go to God on their behalf. They're their spokespeople. The priests are the ones who go to God and offer, you know, sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins and, and tell them what to do and all, the, you know, all this kind of stuff and talk about the law. The prophets are the one who bring the message from God, often bring the judgment from God when they're off track. 
And they were way off track here. They were, he basically says in Isaiah, if you look back to Isaiah chapter five and why there was such an issue there, they were partying all day. He was like, he was like, listen, you guys are, you're starting, you're getting drunk starting in the morning so that you can be drunk all day long. And I know someone famously once said, you can't drink all day unless you drink in the morning. But he, he they were, that's what they were doing. And, um, and he had a real problem with that. And so the prophets were coming in and saying, you can't live this way. This is not honoring to God. And nobody liked to hear that message. I'll put it this way. This would be a good way to understand it. Um, everybody loves the finance manager. Nobody likes the collections agency. That's kind of the deal here. Everybody likes the one who gives you the car. They don't like the one who comes to collect the money. And in a way, that's what priests and prophets were doing. And as they're taking away the car, you're like, no, no, that's my car. And they're like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's the bank. You know that you realize that if you got a loan on your car, it's not your car. It's the bank's car. All right. They, they own it. They are letting you drive it for a while. So long as you make your payments. So what we have here, we have, we have farmers or vine dressers who are taking care of the vineyard and it's not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. They're supposed to manage it and take care of it for the master. But when they are reminded of that fact, they don't like it. They want to own for themselves what does not belong to them. When they're supposed to be caretakers of it, they think that they're owners. They wanted the fruit for themselves. That's why they treated the servants that way. He escalates. Verse 37. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now this one's a little bit of a soft toss. Who is the son? Jesus. You got that, all right? Jesus. Jesus is talking about himself. And what he's saying is that instead of the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel that were supposed to be protecting the nation, they were supposed to be leading the nation, they were supposed to be waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Christ, waiting for the Savior and watching for him. Instead of stepping aside when he arrived and letting him have what was rightfully his, they tried to remove him and take for themselves what was right, rightfully his. He was predicting that was going to happen. And of course it does. Because they're already in the midst of a conspiracy. They are already in the midst of a plot to get rid of them because of the way he threatens their security, because of the way that he threatens their positions, because of the way that he threatens their authority. And so they already have their plan to get rid of them. And they're working the plan and it's starting to escalate and it will over the next week. And it will get worse and worse and worse until finally Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, agrees to betray him. And when he does, Jesus will be put on trial on trumped up charges, charged with treason, charged with a claim to be a king, which is true. He stands in front of, that's what the Roman government was worried about. They were worried about other kings rising up and they were always worried about securing their power. Ultimately, that's what gets Jesus crucified. And so he goes and ultimately he is crucified. Now it's the best thing that could have possibly happened for us. I know the death of a man doesn't sound like it, but in this case it is because on the cross, Jesus offers to pay for our sins. He pays for our sins on the cross so that by simply believing that, by believing in him, we can have salvation. We can have forgiveness. We can spend eternity with God. And Jesus was put into the tomb and he rose again on the third day. So it all worked out. And then he ascended. Okay, it's important that we know he is alive and well today and he ascended to heaven. And here's the deal. We talked about this at the beginning. He's waiting to come back. Now the son in this story doesn't come back, but Jesus will. And Jesus is going to return and we're preparing for that. 
So now Jesus, he continues. He says they kill the son and they think it's theirs. They think they've got it. They think they now have the possession of the land because even if the landowner lives for a little while, eventually he's gonna pass away, right? So they think that ultimately they will get the keys to the vineyard. But in Matthew chapter 21, now in verse 40, Jesus says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Now, what's Jesus doing to them? I call this a guilt selfie. This is a great technique. You can use it with your kids, even with your parents if you want to. It's where you tell a story to get the other person to agree that the behavior was wrong. And then you look at them and you say, oh, by the way, that's you. All right, the, the, the prophet Nathan did this to King David in the Old Testament. You know, David had that whole issue with Bathsheba where he was in his palace and he was looking out over the city and he saw a rooftop and Bathsheba was there doing what she was doing. And he's like, I like what's happening over there. And I would like for what's happening over there to be happening over here. And so he looks into it and he finds out that Bathsheba is married. So he knows he's got to get that guy out of the way. And so he, he figures out a scheme to get that man into battle on the front line of the battle. And when they charge into battle, everybody else is going to back off except this one guy and he's gonna end up getting slaughtered, and he does. And David is successful, and he doesn't think anybody knows about it, but God knows about it, and God tells the prophet Nathan, and Nathan goes to David, and he tells him a story. And he says, David, let me tell you a story, buddy. It's about a guy, a poor guy who had one sheep. And this rich man came along, and he took that poor man's sheep so that he had nothing. What do you think should happen to that rich man? And David's like, oh, that man deserves to die. And he has to pay back fourfold what he owes. And I'm always like, David, like he should pay first and then die. I don't feel like, I don't, I don't see how he can do that in that order. But anyway, David is indignant. And then Nathan looks back at him and says, you are the man. David's like, I know. Oh, that was about me, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it was about you. It's a great technique. And that's what Jesus uses. Because look, look at what he says next. Matthew, uh, now verse 2. 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. That comes from Psalm 18. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the coming savior, the coming king that they were supposed to be looking forward to. And that he's, it's a word picture of the building of a building or in this case, the building of a temple. And what he's saying to them is you look at me and you consider me a stone unworthy for the temple, for the building. I'm not what you expected. I'm not what you want. I'm not what you were looking forward to. And so you won't accept me, but you're not in control of this. And so the stone that you're setting aside is going to become the cornerstone of a building that God is going to build. Christ himself is the cornerstone. It's interesting to me that that prophecy um, uh, Psalm 118, talking about the Messiah very clearly. And it says, if you keep reading, I, I found this fascinating. I, I never realized this until this week when I was studying. Um, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And the next verse says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I never put those two things together. I never, I grew up singing the song. This is the day. Does anybody know that one? This is the day. This is the day. 
I, now I'm like totally blanking, right? The Lord has made. Yeah, it's right there, isn't it? All right, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice. We will rejoice and be glad in it and be glad in it. Oh, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. And I was always like, I don't know, growing up I sang that song and I thought it was just talking about today. You know? <laughs> like, what's that song about? Wednesday. I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty clear that that script, that, this, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it is about the day of Christ coming. It's about the day of the Savior, the day of the Messiah. And the Pharisees who are supposed to be looking forward to this guy were not rejoicing and they were not glad. And Jesus needed them to see that, though of course they wouldn't because their eyes were closed. They couldn't see what he was saying. But I believe everyone else around him did. This uh, verse about the corner, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, it's the same verse that Peter uses in Acts chapter four to convict people of their rejection of Christ. And it's the same day that thousands of people come to faith in him. Cause Jesus, cause Peter says, yes, you rejected him. Yes. The leaders rejected him, but God is using him. And so I would just, I just want to put this to you, whether Christ is your cornerstone or not, whether you've rejected him as insufficient or whether you believe that he is fully sufficient. All right, and then he says in verse 43, he gets really specific with them. He tries to give it to them as, as directly as he possibly can, even though they're still not gonna get it. He says in 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So who's it being taken from? Who are the vine dressers? Do you remember? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, not taken from Israel, not taken from his nation, not uprooted, not uprooted, not cleared, not raised, not leveled to the ground. The vine dressers are going to have the kingdom taken from them. Jesus is looking at the religious leaders and he's saying, you have been in control up to this point, but no more. You were supposed to bear fruit and you didn't. And so you will no longer bear fruit. Sounds a little bit like a fig tree. It's a picture for them. Paul, this, this nation, okay, he says it's going to be given to a nation that will bear the fruits of it. Well, who's the nation? Jesus actually used, I know that word nation carries a lot of connotation for us. Jesus used the word ethnos, ethnos, which means a group of like-minded pe pe people or people who have a similar worldview or mindset. It's the same word that uh, Paul uses throughout his epistles, ethnos, when he's talking about Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers. And so when Jesus, this is, this is the key, this is the point, this is what we really need to hear. When Jesus says, this vineyard, this will be taken from you, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and will be given to a nation that will bear its fruit. Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. And God opened up salvation, opened up a relationship with him beyond the walls of the nation of Israel. No, I mean, Israel is still God's chosen people, but now all of us have the opportunity to become a part of the church and to, to, to experience the fruit and the blessing of the vineyard. 
And I am so thankful that Jesus says this and that he means it and that God does it because I am not Jewish. (laughs) And I would hazard a guess that most of you in the room are also not Jewish. Had it not been for God opening up the kingdom to all people, we would have been on the outside looking in. But now we are on the inside. And the, the vineyard has been handed over to us. And although we look at the religious leaders in the uh, Old Testament caring for the vineyard, in the New Testament, based on the death of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are all ministers of the gospel now. I know we have spiritual leaders, we have pastors and elders and deacons and all these kinds of things, but we are all in the same plane. There is no hierarchy within the church. We are all ministers of the gospel, which means that all of us are both vines that need to produce fruit and vine dressers that need to help others produce fruit at the same time. It has been handed over to us. We are now all responsible for caring for God's vineyard. Jesus said in verse 44, whoever falls on the stone will be broken and on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. He's saying the sun is the hinge point. The cornerstone is the hinge point. It's the hinge point of history and he is the hinge point of your life to decide whether you are for him or against him, to decide whether you believe in him or not. The master was willing to suffer the mistreatment of the servants. He was not willing to suffer the mistreatment of his son, which is what the Pharisees were about to do. And the rejection of Christ would be their judgment. Now verse 45 and 46. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking against them. Really? What was their first clue? Was it when he looked at them and said, the kingdom's going to be taken from you? (laughs) Or was it before then? They perceived that. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. I'll tell you, the, the irony of this parable to me is that their reaction to the parable caused them to do exactly what Jesus warned they would do within the parable. They didn't see what he was talking about. They didn't realize who they were in the story. And they ultimately did exactly what Jesus predicted they would do. They had him crucified. So what I want to do, since we are now responsible for the vineyard, I want to take a couple of quick lessons out of this. So we know, we know what Jesus said. We know what he meant. Now what do we do with that now? So here are a few lessons of the tenants, or the lessons of the tenants. Number one, clearly Jesus is cool with wine. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, not actually, that's not actually it. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out. I do need to say he's not cool with being drunk. Let's be clear about that. All right, but he doesn't seem to have a problem with wine. Anyway, that's, that's, that's point, point, sub point, point five. Okay, so number one, here's the real number one. We do not own the vines we tend. We do not own the vines we tend. We should not make the same mistake the Pharisees made to try and lay hands on what is not ours. We need to recognize that everything that we have in our life comes from God and is a blessing from God. And we are not owners of any of it. We are managers of all of it. All right, fruit should be produced both in us and because of us. 
Fruit needs to be produced in us and through us. That is the fruit of righteousness. God is the owner and provider of all that we have. As we go through these, we're going to do three points here of application. We're going to work through a verse that maybe you wouldn't think ties to this, but I think it does really well. We used it a couple weeks ago, but it's 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to young pastor Timothy, and he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So we got to put on that mindset that God owns everything. I'm simply managing it. The second lesson, our work should produce fruit for God. Now we have, God blesses all of us. He causes the rain to, the sun to shine on everybody and he causes the rain to fall on everybody. Everything we have is a blessing from God. We have two choices. We can either use the blessings of God for his glory or we can use the blessings of God for our glory. We can try and keep it for ourselves like the vine dressers did in the story, like the Pharisees did for themselves, or we can return it to God as it's supposed to. So we need to recognize that all of our fruit, everything we produce, we should return to God and his glory. First Timothy 6, 18, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Right, we need to be open-handed with everything God's blessed us with. As we anticipate the return of Jesus, our work should produce good fruit. That's the fruit of righteousness. So I want you to think about, just think about uh, your, where you have responsibility, where you tend to vine. That may be uh, at home, first and foremost. It may be at school with your classmates or teachers or clubs or sports. It may be at work with your boss or your, your employees or your coworkers or management, or whoever it is. I want you to think about where God has you tending a vine and ask the question, am I producing good fruit? Am I producing good fruit for the glory of God or am I producing fruit for my own glory? In the third lesson, when the sun returns we will enjoy the vintage together. This is the good news, that Christ is returning and those of us that have been faithful to produce fruit and tend the vines to produce good fruit are gonna enjoy reward with him. He's, 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 he's looking to see who he can trust. So when we prove ourselves faithful, he will return and give our just reward. What the, what the vine dressers in this parable failed to recognize was that if they had just welcomed the son when he came, they would have gotten the opportunity to enjoy the harvest together. They would have gotten the opportunity to share in his inheritance rather than trying to take it from him. They missed out on tremendous blessing when that happened. So we go back to 1 Timothy 6. He said, this storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. If you want, I mean, if you're looking for hope in life, this is it. That one day Christ is going to come and those who've been faithful to cultivate kingdom citizens that have been faithful to cultivate fruit in themselves and fruit in other people are going to enjoy the reward of it. One of the most beautiful things, if we're bringing this together Jesus is having his last meal at the end of that week. He's having the last meal with his disciples, with his closest friends and followers. And he, he institutes something we call the Lord's Supper. And we, we do that once a month here in our church together. And he institutes the Lord's Supper and he passes the cup around and he says, drink this and do this in remembrance of, of me, his blood, which was shed for us. And then he says this in Matthew 26, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until the day I drink it new with you 
in my Father's kingdom. That has always meant so, I know he's talking to his disciples, but I believe he's talking to me there too. And I get this picture in my head. If you can flash to the vineyard that you pictured at the beginning of our time today. And I want you to imagine for a second that you're sitting at the top of the tower, would have had like kind of a grass roof with a lookout over the entire vineyard and the sun is setting and the cool breeze is blowing through and you're sitting at a, a small table. You're in one seat and you look across and Jesus is in the other seat. And as you sit there with a glass of Cabernet in your hand and chicken wings on your plate, because it's, it's the kingdom, and Jesus looks over at you and he raises the glass to drink it new in the kingdom. He raises the glass and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. You know who he raises the glass and says that to? Good and faithful servants. Careful, humble, intentional vine dressers committed to caring for what God has given them and producing good fruit. I want that to happen one day for me and I want it to happen one day for you. So let's thank God for that and ask him for the power to pursue it. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that Jesus, you have taught us and that you help us to understand that we are not meant for this world as it is, but that we are meant for your kingdom. That you want us to begin learning now how to live then. That Christ, you gave your life on the cross to make it possible, offering yourself as the payment for sin. That you rose again on the third day in power and victory, that you ascended to heaven, and that you're, you are chomping at the bit to return, waiting for God to release you. I pray, God, that anybody here who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ, that has never said, yes, he is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. He is who he said he was. He did die on the cross. He did pay for my sin on the cross. He did rise again. Anybody who's never made that commitment, that belief in their heart today, that they would make it in this moment. And that for all of us who made that decision, whether it was just now or whether it was years and years and years ago, that you would keep our eyes set ahead on your good vineyard, on what you have coming and have promised for us. And that you help us to understand what it means to produce good fruit in our life. What it means to be faithful to you. What it means to be righteous and to pursue holiness to pursue Christ-likeness and that you would give us resolve to do that more day and day. That you would help us to understand in our life what vines you've planted us, you put us there to tend. Whether it's our children or our parents or our brothers and sisters or our coworkers or our teammates or whoever it may be. That, we, that you would set us to work faithfully producing, helping to produce fruit in their life. So that when you return, we recognize it's all yours and all from you and all for you. So that when you return, instead of rejecting like the Pharisees did, we would embrace and welcome you, welcome your son so that we can share in the inheritance together, to share in the fruit together.
God, we need your direction in that. And so we're gonna start today, God, by simply affirming that you own it all. Affirming that you are in control. Affirming that Christ is who he says he is. Because it's on that confession that everything else will be built. It's on that stone that the whole building is built. Lead us. It's in your name we pray.